Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. A quick reminder that we're now almost three issues into our newsletter, The Grimoire, and Pete has been hard at work wrangling all of us slackers to get our content finished and ready to go so we can deliver some dark delights to your inbox. If you haven't signed up for it and you'd like a little darkness in your email each month, head to our website, where you'll find a link to sign up near the bottom of our homepage. It's a fun little supplement to the podcast, and it'll give you a chance to get to know some of the people behind the show a little better. Also, before I forget, this isn't exactly new news, but I'd like to mention that the Stoker Awards are open for submissions, and we would absolutely love to see some of our hard-working authors gain a nod next year. If you're an HWA member, and you've heard a particularly chilling tale on this show, a story that sticks in your mind, feeding off of your sanity, well, you can submit it for consideration. Visit thebramstokerawards.com slash submissions for all the gory details. Speaking of recognizing great work, I want to give a special shout-out to Justin Whitaker and Kang N for your tremendous support over on Patreon. You're the fetid air that breathes life into this cadaverous creation each week. We've got a longer story this week, so our sightseeing stop will be a little brief, 
we're headed north this week to a little community that, I suspect, few people even know about. Just south of the border between the Yukon Territory and the province of British Columbia sits the tiny community of Atlin. Like so many communities in the mountainous province, it's a popular little spot for fishing and hiking in the summer and skiing in the winter. With only 450 permanent residents, it seems to teeter on the edge of becoming a ghost town itself, like so many of the little hamlets and villages that sprung up in the Rockies during the gold rush. But while many of those towns were abandoned decades ago, when their seams of precious metal ran dry, Atlin has managed to hang on, due in no small part to the fact that its gold deposits have yet to give up the ghost. The town isn't big on landmarks, but during its heyday, the unassuming Kootenai Hotel was pretty much it. It's a building that holds a special place in the hearts of residents, or at least it did. It burned down not once, not twice, but three times. Back in the early 1900s, Atlin was an important way station for those traveling to Whitehorse for medical treatment. If you were injured in the area, chances are you'd be flown into Atlin on a bush plane, then taken the rest of the way along the rough and rocky road in a mail bus to Whitehorse. But first, you'd spend a night in the Kootenai Hotel. One regular of the little hotel was an elderly First Nations woman who would often stop in Atlin on her way to the city. She was feisty, but good-natured, and always liked to strike up conversations with the staff and other guests, weaving tales of her childhood near Telegraph Creek. She was small and shriveled, back bent and hands gnarled with arthritis. But the one thing she loved more than a good story was smoking cigarettes. Of course, this was long before the days of Bic lighters. For her to light a smoke meant using matches, something that, with her twisted fingers stiff and uncooperative, was no easy task. And given the building's long-standing relationship with devastating fire, having burned down and been rebuilt twice already, it was no wonder that the hotel owner was keen to help her find an alternative. Each time she'd visit, he'd book her in room 11, directly above the hotel office. If you need a cigarette, he said, you just rap on the floor with that cane of yours, and I'll come up and bring you a light. I don't want you fumbling around with no matches and burning the place down again. She agreed. That was mighty helpful of him, after all. And so, when she'd need her bedtime cigarette lit, she'd grasp her cane thump three times loudly on the floorboards, and a few minutes later, she'd hear the creak of the stairs as the owner made his way up to give her a light. But one night, when she rapped, he didn't appear. She waited a few minutes, waited for the creak of the stairs or footsteps in the hallway. She rapped again, harder this time. Still no response. It took a while before the proprietor finally finished the work that had occupied him and made his way up the stairs. But when he turned the knob and swung the door open to room 11, he discovered he was too late. She lay sideways on the edge of the bed, 
cane still grasped in her gnarled hands, cigarette hanging from her pale lips. The owner felt awful. The small, irrational part of his brain wondered if she'd have lived if he'd made it up there in time. But that didn't make any sense. She was old and feeble. Her time was up anyway. Even though she could be a cranky pain in the ass, she had a kind heart and a good sense of humor, and he'd grown accustomed to her. So, a few nights later, when he heard the raps on the floor again, he was halfway to the office door, matches in hand, before he realized it couldn't be her. He stopped, sat back down, and the raps came again. Confused, he went upstairs to her room. He cracked the door to number 11 and half expected to see her sitting there on the edge of the bed like always. But there was nothing in the room except a light chill. This rapping continued for years, long after the Kootenai Hotel changed hands, long after the owner was dead and buried. One man who worked for the phone company would often stay in the room just across the hall. Each night he would hear the tapping, three hard raps on the floor, and later, three more. But there was rarely anyone else around, and room 11, where the sounds came from, was inevitably empty. Many guests and staff had tried to seek out the source of the sound, looking for pipes, loose boards, damaged furniture, and even pests, trying desperately to discover the cause. One woman was reported to have scoured every inch of the hotel attic on hands and knees in an attempt to find something, anything, that could explain the maddening noise. The entire exterior of the hotel was even stripped and examined for wires or loose siding or anything that might tap rhythmically in the wind. But the cause was never found would never be found. Not long after that last search, the Kootenai Hotel, surprise, burned to the ground, and this time, no one had the heart to rebuild. It seems that after waiting for so many years, the old woman may have finally got a light. We have one longer tale for you this evening, which comes from L.S. Johnson. L.S. Johnson lives in Northern California, where she feeds her cats by writing book indexes. She is the author of the Gothic novellas Harkworth Hall and Leviathan. Her first collection, Vacui Magia, won the North Street Book Prize and was a finalist for the World Fantasy Award. Her second collection, Rare Birds, is now available. Find her online and sign up for her newsletter at Traversings.com. Link is in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for L.S. Johnson's Julie, first published in Strange Tales 5, 2015. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Seventeen forty nine. Her name was Julie, and she was kept by Reverend Klupfel. She had known what it meant to be kept, halfway between whore and wife, her aunt had explained. Less work than the former, with prettier jewels than the latter. And to Klupfel, of course she will need someone to dress her, watch over her. She's a simple little thing, hardly the sense she was born with. Later that night, bundling their clothes into the satchel he had hastily provided, Madame Klupfel, not likely, my girl, not this one, wearing his collar to seduce a village girl. You just make sure you keep him interested. Julie hadn't argued because her aunt knew better about such things. But all the way to Paris, she had mouthed the name to herself, had stolen glances at his profile, tried to imagine what their children would look like. Madame Klupfel. For the whole of the week-long journey, her aunt prattled on about the city, the shops, the fine clothes that even the poorest people wore, the fairs and the balls, all that they would see and do. Klupfel ignored them, keeping his nose in a book that looked proper on the outside, but Julie knew that it was filled with pictures of buxom women with their skirts hiked up. She had blushed when he showed it to her, was that what she looked like at night when he beckoned her to his room? Her aunt modestly averting her eyes while giving her a little push. As it turned out, Klupfel was not only a debauched minister, 
but a poor one as well. He installed Julie and her aunt in a drafty garret in a neighborhood reeking from the nearby tanneries. They walked past rows of skinned animals swarming with flies just to get their bread. Coarse men leering at Julie and her aunt alike. Every day, the landlady made comments. The water seller complained about his unpaid bill. And what happens when you lose your looks? Her aunt had asked fretfully. Though before Julie could answer, she continued, We'll be out on the street with nothing. He did bring us to Paris, Julie said, because it made her uncomfortable to hear her aunt speak about Klupfel in such a way. But her aunt only shrugged, and he's received plenty in return. So late one night, when Julie pretended to sleep, her aunt and Klupfel negotiated. And the next evening, Klupfel brought a friend back with him. He introduced his friend to her aunt, and when the money had changed hands, he showed his friend to the bedroom, where Julie was waiting. The book is called Julie, and it is on the lips of every man and woman in Paris. Julie knows of it. She hears her name at the marketplace and the fair. She hears Julie, Julie, amidst the noise of the cafes. She sees the rapture on others' faces as they speak her name. Soon, the brothel's customers come with its volumes tucked under their arms. They ask to call her Julie. They tell her their name is Sampru. That all of Paris is in love with her name seems at first a, a poor joke, nothing more. It takes several nights for her to piece together the story, how the book Julie falls in love with her tutor, Sampru, but is forced to marry another, so she and Sampru can only love each other in letters. It takes several nights because her customers can barely get through a few pages at a time. The very words seem to stoke their ardor to a feverish pitch, and there are always extra coins on the table afterwards. It takes Julie longer still to learn that the book Julie dies without ever marrying her Sampru. It is almost as an afterthought that she thinks to inquire who wrote such a tale, which makes grown men weep even as they pant, Julie, in her ear. Sweet girl, her customer said, stroking her face. You will not know of him, though he is one of the great men of our age. His name is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. She tries to dismiss it as a coincidence. How many Julies are there in the world? She tells herself this. She tries to ignore it, but it gnaws at her. She hides the extra coins from the grasping hands of the brothel keeper, Madame Travers, and she manages to save enough to buy the first volume of Julie ou la Nouvelle Héloïse by J.J. Rousseau. And what little she is able to read makes her feel faint. Was she not also blonde? Was there not something of her aunt in the mother? 
wasn't this phrase and this one sayings of Klupfels? She scrutinizes the pages as if they are some kind of holy epistle, muttering the words to herself night after night after night, until finally she collapses from sheer exhaustion. The other girls tell Travers, who at once confiscates the book and brings in a surgeon, who in turn prescribes bed rest and an end to so-called philosophies, burdening Julie's uneducated mind. Thereafter, the only customers permitted to see Julie are servants, often still in their livery, or young clerks who leave smears upon her body, chalk dust and ink, the marks of their trades. Any scrap of paper, even a list or a chit, has to be left at the door. But it is too late for her. 1749 There were three sets of footsteps on the stairs that night, and Klupfel introduced two friends, Messieurs Friedrich Grimm and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Julie didn't think anything of it, because her aunt was away visiting their village, and it had been agreed upon that no one would bet her save Klupfel until her aunt returned. The friends brought wine, and Klupfel brought Julie a sweet cake with pretty icing, and they invited her to join their party. They talked about the theater and the opera, and they took the time to explain the names and the words to her until she felt giddy to be among them. When she closed her eyes, she saw not the spinning garret, but a grand room, and herself in silk and jewels and broad panniers so that she swept proudly through the halls. And the music they sang, the sweetest melodies imaginable, the kind of music she had only heard in her dreams. Klubfell's hand on the small of her back, steering her into the bedroom, and she had looked into his eyes as he kissed her and thought she might become Madame Klubfell after all. He was up her before she even had time to unlace her stays, taking her quickly atop the bed rug, her skirts bunching around her waist and his arm keeping her close. She giggled through it all, still thinking about going to the opera as Madame Klupfel, and everyone bowing to her reverend husband, while only she knew just what a randy old goat he was. She was still giggling when he disappeared for a moment and it had been some time before she realized that the man now caressing her was not Klupfel, but Frederick, sniggering as if he was sharing the joke. 1761 Her name is Isabella, but Madame Travers said they have assigned names, so she is Tulip, and Julie is Lilis. Welcome to my garden, Travers declares to their customers, Look at all my beautiful flowers. Tulip has been ordered to watch Lilis between customers to make sure there are no more episodes, throw a fit before one of their gentlemen, and he would think the whole garden riddled with illness, and what would become of the rest of them? To which Isabella rolled her eyes. <laughs> As if we gave up love when we gave up our virtue, she says after Travers has stormed off, for all the girls have decided Lilis has been jilted. Why else would she carry on so? 
You must learn to be less trusting, Lilis. A fellow will say anything for a little extra, but nothing they say can change what you are, now can it? She taps her pelvis and then makes a flicking gesture. Once it's gone, it's gone. A fellow will say anything. Klufel's easy conversation, his admiring looks. He had walked her to his carriage. Or had there been an arbor? She remembers sweet flowers, trees. No, no, that was the book, Julie. Isabella crawls onto the bed beside her, kicking off her slippers and producing from the folds of her bedgown one of the volumes of Julie. What I cannot understand, she says, thumbing through the pages, as if she can read them easily, though Julie knows she has to sound out the words. What I cannot understand is what gets them so stiff. All these people do is write to each other. And the things they say. Her voice rises to a mocking falsetto. You profane me by loving me too much. Your virtues are the last refuge of my innocence. (laughs) She bursts out laughing. His lordship's pantry was the last refuge of mine. Monsieur Rousseau must be as strange as they say to find pleasure in this bullshit. But Julie only turns toward the wall, tears welling in her eyes, like hearing something deep within herself put into words. His words. Save that they weren't right. They made everything different. Rousseau, Isabella says. She tosses the book aside and leans over Julie, peering at her. Rousseau, Rousseau. Ah, that's it, isn't it? He screwed you. He screwed you, and now he's wealthy and famous, and he's forgotten all about poor little Lilis. She clamors over Julie and snuggles close, propping her head on her hand. Tell Mama Tulip all about it. What did he make you do? Does he really talk like this? But when Julie opens her mouth, only a sob comes out. And Isabella grows somber. Tell me, she says more gently, wiping at Julie's tears. Tell Isabella everything. 1749. When it hurt, or when she was tired or ill, Julie would pretend she was somewhere else, living another life. That she had married a farmer close to her village, or a soldier in the colonies, perhaps. A good, strong husband and father, happy to work the land, like Adam and Eve in the garden. That night, however, she hadn't yet learned the trick of pretending. Also, the room had not stopped spinning. At first, Friedrich tried to tease her into some kind of playfulness, but she was too dizzy to respond. She managed to smile out of habit, but... For a moment, she couldn't understand why he was even there. Only later did she realize he hadn't even bothered to take his shoes off. He had simply propped a knee on the bed and rolled her on all fours. The sudden change of perspective made the wine lurch in her stomach, but at least she could close her eyes. She could close her eyes and wonder, what was Klupfeld doing? Didn't he realize that once her aunt found out, She would make Julie leave him. And then, 
she understood, as swift and vicious as a slap. He did realize. He was finished with her. She had begun to cry, her tears pattering on the bed rug. Behind her, Friedrich paused, then withdrew and began pulling up his breeches. I'm sorry, he said, but she waved him away, weeping. What did it matter now? Klupfel had finally come to the end of his means. Or perhaps he had come to the end a long time ago. Or perhaps he simply no longer wanted her. A girl who would part her legs for any man he brought back, young or old, handsome or ugly. When Jean-Jacques came into the room, she lay on her back, trying to smile despite her tears. They would need money for new lodgings, after all. But instead of simply taking her or caressing her first as Friedrich had done, he had paused and glared at her, swaying a little. Then he seized her by her hair, pulling her face toward his while she gasped and struggled to balance herself. You all look at me like that, he mumbled, his breath thick with drink. You all think I'm nothing. Before she could think of what to say, he kissed her, his eyes locked with hers, her head throbbing where his hand was still gripping her hair. She could taste wine and some kind of sour stew, and when she closed her eyes, he gave her head a hard shake. Am I not good enough? He demanded. You like Klupfel well enough. You liked Grimm. Everyone likes Grimm. But you're too good for me. He exhaled, whether in laughter or anger, she couldn't tell. I'll show you. I'll show you that Rousseau is a man, a real man. He let go of her head and she fell backwards with a cry. Look at me, he said, unbuttoning his breeches. I won't be insulted by the likes of you. You understand? Now look at me. She opened her mouth to call for Klupfel, but she realized that the garret was deathly quiet. The only sounds... Jean-Jacques huffing curses as he struggled to get his breeches down. Klupfel and Friedrich were gone. Instead, she made herself smile at him, meeting his eyes, and tried to keep looking at him, keep her expression pleasant as he wanted. If she so much as blinked, he would stop and shake her, or give her a slap. Look at me, look at me like you looked at Klupfel. Do you think yourself better than me, Comtesse Julie, Princess Julie, a dumb slattern like you, better than Rousseau? Damn you, look at me. And there was something in his voice, something that terrified her. And she had looked until her eyes hurt, not daring to so much as blink, until she wept simply to keep her eyes from shriveling in her head. 1761 Poor little Lillis, Isabella whispers. So you think what? There is something of you in this Julie? She hesitates. Uh, only you know there, there must be a thousand Julies in Paris alone. 
I don't know. I don't know. Julie cries. Only why my name? Why make her blonde? And some of the things they say. I know they were things they spoke of that night. Why would he write such things? Why would he call her Julie? Isabella shrugs. Why do they do anything? She squints at Julie, her expression becoming sly. Though, if it's as you say, and he did use your words, just imagine a night with the real Julie. Hear the true story. How you loved your reverend, but he was too poor to keep you. Now you are fallen from innocence. You pine for him. Oh, you would make a fortune. But the thought only makes Julie cry harder. Oh, Lillis, was it really so bad? Isabella hushes her before she can reply. Only it was years ago now. And he didn't really hurt you, did he? It could have been so much worse. And it could have been. Julie knows this. She has seen the bodies in gutters, heard the screams from behind the hospital's high walls. Girls turned up begging at the brothel door all the time, their faces scarred, their minds made simple from prison while Jean-Jacques hadn't even marked her. Had even seemed ashamed as he left, unable to look at her. And yet, all these sans demanding that she speak Julie's words, speak his words, declaring his words the truth of love. Rousseau has given voice to love, as if he were a saint, all these Samprus asking for Julie, as if they bought her when they bought his book. She has so little she can count her possessions on her fingers, her name among them. Yet Jean-Jacques simply gave it to this other woman, a woman who has everything, a husband and a lover, children, money and security, and sold her. To everyone. And there is something else. Something she cannot find the words for. Only the feeling that some part of herself has been terribly, permanently lost. What do you want, Julie? Isabella's fingers wiping at her endless tears. I want everyone to know. What he's really like, she whispers. That he is a hypocrite. That his story is a lie. She takes a shuddering breath. If another man comes to me and asks for Julie, I'll go mad. I cannot bear it. She clutches her head as if to push the words out once and for all. I know someone who can help you. Isabella says, her lips petal soft against Julie's cheek. You need to go see Lisa. Part 2 It is just before dawn when Julie slips out, drawing her cloak tightly around herself. Never has she walked alone at such an hour. 
the quiet broken only by her clogs banging against the cobblestones as loud as pistol shots. She clutches a small, sharp knife in her hand and whispers to herself animal noises that make no sense but comfort her nonetheless. I had a man bothering me, Isabella said, always forcing his way in, never paying for it. And she helped me to, to drive him away. I cannot explain how. It was like a dream or a fit of madness. But I made him go away. And later, they pulled him out of the Seine. And it was because of Lisa. She can make things happen, even for women like us. In the little yard before the church, there is a row of houses, small and old. As Isabella said, the plaster crumbling, the timbers dark with age. There is a black door and another, and then a green door, slightly open, the paint peeling to reveal the paler wood beneath. As Isabella said, Julie lays her hand upon the mist slick doors and pushes, her breath audible, blood pounding in her ears. But inside there is only a room, long since abandoned. Floorboards missing, the walls pocked with holes. Windows gaping like open mouths ringed with glass fangs. In a far corner is a mattress smelling of piss and empty bottles and what looks for all the world like a crushed and filthy bonnet. For a moment, she is furious. <laughs> Isabella has made a fool out of her. The story was so fantastic. Why did she believe it? Made a fool out of her and was probably in her room now, rifling through her clothes perhaps even finding the secret pouch of money she has secured in the back of her wardrobe. All she had in the world, her little pouch and her name. But then she remembers the rest of Isabella's instructions. She closes the door again. The yard is silent, a few gravestones glistening with the rising dew. The church windows are dark and empty as the sky. Past the church and the roofs beyond, there is a hint of purple. She is nearly out of time. And perhaps the purple is a sign. She shouldn't do this. It wasn't so bad. She has survived worse men since. Why is she doing this? There were worse fates. There were far worse fates, and she has heard them screaming in the night. What is she doing now if not spitting in the face of her good fortune? A dumb slattern like you, better than Rousseau. Not by any standard she knows, yet every time she remembers his words, a little voice inside her cries. Yes. She holds out her hand, smooth still, but her knuckles are already cracked and knotted just from washing. So much washing. Herself between customers, all the costumes she has to wear, the laundry her aunt had taken in right after they left Klupfel, before Travers agreed to keep her. All these people keeping her. All these bodies inside her, atop her. Julie, they pant in her ear, 
object of worship, bewitching maid. And she reciting in turn, you have undone me. Empty words, their very utterance a mockery. She takes the little knife and cuts swift and deep into the thickest part of her palm, and she cries out at the pain, the blood spattering on the front step. Clutching her hand closed, tears filling her eyes, she nudges the green door with her foot, and there is only a warm darkness, her blood smearing between her palms. She takes a step forward, but the room flashes white and green and yellow, one color after another, like silent explosions, and she slips and falls, head first, into the dark. When Julie awakens, she is not in her bed, nor any of the others she has known. Childhood beds and rich men's beds and the narrow ottomans of parties she was paid to attend. She awakens to a face full of dirt, barely visible in the gloom, and for a moment she thinks she is dead. Until her hand starts throbbing and burning, she can barely close it for the pain. She realizes she has done something foolish. She has fallen into a hole and cut her own hand beyond use. How will she get out now? But you've only just arrived. A woman's voice, low and rich. Julie goes rigid, her heart pounding. Julie. The voice utters her name with satisfaction, letting the vowels drag out. Julie, Julie, show Lisa where it hurts. There is a rustling sound as if feet on pebbles. At once Julie looks up, her mouth open in fright. And just as quickly looks away. The woman towering over her is impossibly tall and broad and naked, a pillar of gray-hued skin and curling black hair. Her face is nearly hidden by a thick expanse of thigh and belly and breast, and her hands and feet are as large as a man's. Lisa bends over and lays one damp palm atop Julie's head, and Julie clenches her eyes shut. Am I that hideous? Or perhaps Paris has been a little too good to me, eh? She laughs, a deep belly laugh and the smell that washes over Julie is of the brothel's laundry in midsummer, the stench of a dozen women's sweat and piss and courses. Look at me, she says mockingly, and her voice is his, all the intervening years gone at once. You like Grimm? Why don't you like me? Look at me, boo-hoo-hoo. Why don't you like poor, ugly Rousseau? Julie scuttles backward with a cry, cringing away from Lisa's outstretched hand. But how did you... I can read you, she says. You wear all of your words right here. Her squat finger circles her own lined face. Your whole story fits on your forehead. Did you know? Like a child... She smiles, revealing broken yellow teeth. I know why you're really here, Julie. Do you?
Lisa turns and walks away, the flesh of her buttocks shaking, and Julie rises as well, clutching her sore hand to her breast. She can see now that they are not in a hole but a large room with rough stone pillars, the walls interrupted by the mouths of black tunnels. A dim light fills the room, but where it is coming from she cannot tell. In the center of the room, incongruously, is a pink damask sofa atop a thick Turkish rug, the colors bright and fresh, the pair seemingly transported from fine Paris salon. It is on the sofa now that Lisa settles. Much too large for the seat, her hands spilling over the sides when she stretches her arms along the back, crossing her sprawling legs like a man. Blushing, Julie averts her eyes. It all has to be some terrible joke, some crazed scheme of Isabella's. How else this woman here, how else could she know? All your words on your forehead. Lisa repeats dreamily, watching her. It's no wonder they write all over you. But you can tell a different story. The room grows warm as she speaks, the air becoming close. Nervously, Julie glances at the tunnels, trying to think on, on what to do. Run? But there are shapes moving in and out, trotting to and fro, their eyes and teeth gleaming. Dogs. Don't be afraid of my girls, Lisa says. They understand all too well, Julie. They can help you, if you let them. Her smile broadens. A bitch always hunts better than a dog. Julie tries and fails to smile in return. It takes much for her to walk up to the edge of the rug, her eyes darting to follow every shadow. Now she can see the animals more clearly, see the flecks of foam on their muzzles. Isabella? She begins, but the name comes out as a squeak. She swallows and clears her throat. Isabella said you could help me. Lisa just looks at her. Only, only he took my name. Her eyes are welling, like it was too good for me. He took my name, and he took things we said and we did, and he gave it all to her. And yet they speak of him as a great man, when he's just a thief, when he wouldn't even see me. He looked at me, and he made me feel disgusting. She is weeping, the words so jumbled even she cannot understand. So you want to make him pay, is that it? Lisa scratches idly at her foot, her fingernails streaking the caked dirt on her sole. He has no pleasant future, I can assure you. Injury, death, and public confession, all these things will happen at their time. Though we could make it worse, you and I. We could drive him to true madness. We could destroy his reputation. Her hand flutters lightly over her stomach. He will fall at his time and no other. 
There are rules about such things. But how he falls, what pushes him over the precipice? You can be that which undoes him. She draws the word out. Yes, Julie says, her own voice strangely doubled in her ears, until she understands that it is the small voice inside her as well, crying out, A dumb slattern better than Rousseau. Yes. Then you must give me something in turn. Lisa's hand settles into a rhythmic stroking, rubbing the flesh of her stomach back and forth, ripples forming around her fingers. Everything you need is already inside you, but you must be honest with me. She pauses, watching Julie closely. You want him to suffer, but not because he took your name. Not really. Tell me why, Julie. Tell me why, and I can make it all happen. Julie just looks at her, her eyes running, running. Tell me. Lisa's smile broadens, baring her sharp teeth. Tell me. Madame Klupfel. She flinches as if Lisa struck her, her cheeks flaring red. Don't call me that, she cries. Only I, I thought he wanted me. Understanding fills her, making her tremble. I thought he wanted me. But no one even sees me. They only see a, a whore. And now everyone says they love Julie. They would die for Julie. And they look right at me. But they only see her. She presses her palms to her eyes. Two Julies, their whole lives spent hoping for love. Lisa's tone is light, almost mocking. Even with the years, their circumstances still hoping it might happen, that they will both want and be wanted. Now Rousseau sells your hopes out of every bookshop in the continent. And that isn't the worst of it, is it? She leans forward, inhaling deeply. The worst of it is that even his, Julie, doesn't get to have it, does she? A girl like her, wealthy and adored, her story written by the famous Rousseau. If she can't have love, what hope does Klupfel's whore have? Julie is sobbing now, her tears stinging the raw wound in her hand, and she cries and cries. No love. Already her course is uneven. Her body starting to slacken. The men's eyes passing over her in Travers's sitting room. No love for her. Around her skirts, the dogs press in, panting against her legs, smearing the linen with their foaming spit. No love in her life, ever. That's it, Lisa whispers, her skin flushing, the lines in her face smoothing out. Now. Hate him for it, Julie. That's my girl. 
hate him, as you once hoped to love. Julie sinks down onto the rug, weeping, the dogs whining and licking at her tears. She opens her mouth, but she feels emptied of words for what she feels, for the strange keening loss inside her. She drops her head to the rug, her hands in fists by her ears, her whole body shuddering. No, love. Her belly twists and rolls, and she thinks she might vomit from sorrow. All of them taking from her, night after night, taking and taking, and when they look in her eyes, all they see is what he made them imagine. No love, no love, no love. She opens her mouth and screams into the carpet, everything wild and spinning, a scream that trails off into gagging, her spit dribbling onto the carpet as she heaves and coughs, her body turned inside out from sobbing. No love for Julie, Lissa pants, no name, no husband, no home, no babes at your breast, while he abandons his babies at the orphanage, while he keeps a woman and chases others. No love, no love, no love. Hate him, Julie, hate him for yourself, hate him. For your sisters, hate him for me. Give me your rage and let me free you. The dogs surround her and in hot fur and breath and the wet of their noses and Julie flattens completely, letting them nip at her arms and legs. Above her, Lisa is still speaking. What is she saying? The keening sorrow dying away inside her, replaced by a vigor she has never felt before. The vast shadow falls over her, and Julie looks up, yelping not in fright, but in pleasure now, as Lisa's hand scratches behind the soft golden fur of her ears. When the scratching becomes a pinch, however, she snaps hard, baring her teeth. But Lisa only laughs aloud, rubbing her head once more. That's my girl, she says approvingly. No fear now, no foolish hope, only your beautiful anger. She points to one of the dark tunnels and a breeze rushes over Julie, smelling of him, his sour breath in his body. She whines aloud, trembling with anticipation. That's my girl, Lisa says again and snaps her fingers. Now, get him. Part three. Julie runs faster than she ever has. Even as a child, she has never run so quickly, so freely. Her long legs tearing over cobblestones, splashing in the muck of the drains. She races around the legs of passerby tearing past skirts and undercarts, cutting down narrow, dark alleys, smelling of death and sex and shit and out into the wider streets again. Boys lunge to grab her, but she is 
gone before they can seize her. She feels their hands impotently grazing her tail. She runs past the brothel's dark door, recognizing it by smell and shape, and she barks in a wild glee, but she does not stop. Beside a large coach, she sees drowsing a fine mastiff, all muscle and sleek gray fur, and she pauses then. He catches her eye and rouses, looking her over. And for a moment, she thinks to lure him away, let him take her quickly and fiercely beneath the stars. But it is not time for that, and she runs on. She sleeps in an open field, the wind stroking her over and over like a mother, and she bathes contentedly at dawn, stretching and rolling, letting the sun warm her body into wakefulness. She runs past the open pit of the cemetery, the bodies already reeking in the rising heat of the day, and the smell is not repugnant but rich and fetid and strangely pleasurable, and she senses just on the edge of her perception how there is earth in the corpses and in her own body, how there is life in the ground beneath her, how in everything there is a common scent and taste that she can just barely discern. In the yard behind a butcher's, she wriggles through the gap in the wall and wolfs down a few sweet mouthfuls of discarded meat, tearing at it and tossing it playfully about until a stone clatters by her head and sends her running again. She runs and runs, her breath ragged in her throat, her heart thumping as it never has before. Paris, as large as the world, with its bends and turns, its buildings short and tall, where might she go now? And now? And now? Anywhere she wants. What do you want, Julie? Someone was speaking. But then she smells him. And she remembers and stops. He is walking away from her, one hand brushing the walls to steady himself. She falls into a trot behind him, watching his face shadowed, but his smell is as clear in her mind as his voice, as the touch of his hand, as the feel of him inside her. Even as she follows, a young man hurries up to him, breathless, Monsieur Rousseau, and proceeds to kiss his hand, nearly weeping, while gasping out praises. Rousseau has given voice to love. Do you think yourself better than me? Countess Julie, Princess Julie, you profane me by loving me too much. She feels her anger, and it is clean and strong and purposeful. He turns into a narrower street, waving the young man away. She can see now that the stumbling gait is not drunkenness, but age. And she begins panting in delighted anticipation at how easily she will take him. Behind her, there is a thunderous rattling of a carriage, rushing headlong. Without looking, she can sense the speed of the vehicle, the nervous sweat of the horse panicked by the cracking whip. Ahead of her, the other passers-by press themselves against the walls. Rousseau turns at the noise, and she growls at him, and the fear in his eyes makes her ecstatic. The walls are high on either side. The street is as long and tight as a chute. 
His escape is blocked by the carriage behind, by the stretch of unbroken walls ahead. She leaps at him, and all he can do is throw his arm across his face and scream. Her teeth sink into his forearm as she rides him to the ground, snarling and tearing at his skin, his head cracking against the stones, his hot blood in her mouth, pooling beneath him. He hits at her, but the blow barely grazes her head. She feels, for the first time in her life, triumphant. Do you think yourself better than me? She cries mockingly, but all that comes out is a frenzy of barks. Behind them, the carriage comes to a skidding halt, the horse rearing in fright. Still, she crouches atop Rousseau, pinning him to the ground, snapping her bloody teeth in his face every time his eyes start to drift closed. The blood leaking from his cracked skull is dark and thick, and she does not take her eyes from his. And then a man kicks her aside, taking all the wind from her. When she lunges toward Rousseau again, the man kneels furiously and draws his sword, slicing a wide arc inches from her face and driving her backwards down the street. The passers-by swoop in from the walls, circling Rousseau and calling for a surgeon. The boot catches her again in her ribs, sending her clattering against the wall. The last thing she sees is the horse, still wheezing open-mouthed, meeting her eyes with a kind of grateful sympathy. When Julie awakens, it is to the bright midday sunlight in the churchyard. She is huddled on the front step of the little house like a beggar, her dress filthy and her hands smeared with dried blood, the edges of the wound unevenly gummed together. Her ribs throb with every breath. Her ankle is so swollen it has burst through her stocking. How long has she been lying here? With a grunt of pain, she makes herself move. The street's crowded now, dozens of eyes upon her at every turn. She knows how she must look. She ducks into smaller alleys to avoid the police who would surely stop her. She had been running, but the memories are slipping away, replaced by her anxiety over the hour. She hurries blindly through the streets, trying to calm her rising panic. At the door of the brothel, she hesitates. How can she account for herself? She, she was attacked, robbed, and she ran and fell and struck her head. Only now has she come to. She recites the story to herself until it sounds natural, then knocks at the door. Only to come face to face with a girl she's never met before. When did she get taken on? When Julie tries to step inside, the girl pushes her back, a hard shove that makes her twist her sore ankle anew, leaving her gasping while the girl hollers for Madame Travers. And the woman who comes to the door is Travers, and yet not. Visibly older, the piled hair a wiry gray, her drawn face wrinkled into a sneer as she looks Julie over. Crawling back, she declares, crawling back after all these years, after all I did for you. What, did some fellow make you promises? Nice rooms and pretty dresses and Lilith's all to himself. So go back to him, you ungrateful little bitch. And with that, she slams the door, leaving Julie on the street, stunned 
Travers's face. She knocks again, frightened now, only to be met with a chorus of jeers from above. She looks up, just in time to dodge the muck of the first chamber pot. All the windows swing open, the girls crowding and jostling to fling one after another at her, shouting threats and insults to the amusement of the passers-by. Bewildered, Julie stumbles away down the street. Many of the shops have new friends or have changed completely. She stops before a large window, gaping at what appears to be her own face and yet not. A thinner Julie, nearly gaunt, with narrower lips and her hair kinked with white. In wonderment, she touches her own cheek, feels a soft dryness that it never had, and then she turns over her hands, looking closely at them, seeing fine lines that had not been there before. It is with a sense of dread that she looks more closely at the shop's windows, prints of a coronation she has no recollection of, portraits of a king and queen she does not recognize, tracks about colonies in revolt. Once she had dreamt about life in the colonies, and then she sees the gazette, the date writ large on the front, and her knees nearly give out from beneath her. Seventeen. Seventy-five. Fourteen years. Madame? Madame, are you ill? She looks up at the face of a man she doesn't know, his wig oddly small and tightly curled, the cut on his suit not quite right. She would have thought him foreign once. Injury, death, a public confession, all these things will happen at their time. There are rules. Fourteen years. Lost. He tries to take her arm, but she jerks away, whimpering. He looks around then, and she recognizes that look. First a policeman, then a dark prison cell if she's lucky, never to be seen again. Instead, she ducks past him and hurries down the street as fast as her sore ankle will allow, clutching her ribs. Fresh panic, making her breath short and tight. The face is normal, and, and yet not. The carriage is a little different. The slight changes, maddening. She has had her fill of madness now. The sun has just set when she finally makes it back to the churchyard. No knife, but the house is abandoned as ever. She merely snaps off a shard of glass. A cursory wipe and she stabs her hand with it, barely noticing the pain atop the old. She pushes the green door open, crying, Lisa! Lisa! Help me! But there is only the room. The last rotting traces of the mattress. She tries again, and again, smearing door and step alike with her blood, dribbling it inside and out. Nothing makes the darkness come. 1782. She knows how she looks, 14 years lost, and since only piecework and laundry. Honest trades, but poor ones, and the work exhausting. Her hair white and thin, her hands gnarled, cheeks hollow from pulled teeth. She has no money for a wig or the wooden teeth that finer ladies use. 
She has a room and a little food and two spare petticoats, and if she loses the room, she may as well be dead. Still, Julie stands now before the bookseller, silently hoping. He is studying her with overt suspicion, but also curiosity, and she is betting on the latter. Madame, he says, the great Rousseau's confessions are six books to date, which we have impeccably bound at considerable expense. I cannot simply let any person come in here and handle them. She takes a breath. Have you read them? Again, he studies her, his expression softening. I have, several times now. I am a lifelong admirer of the man. I have read every work. I had inquiries out the moment. I heard he was writing his memoirs. To finally have them after so many years. What do you mean? You do not know? He leans forward now, warming to his subject. He wrote them years ago, madame. But to his credit, he refused to have them published until certain persons had passed, or until he himself was, was with his maker. He pauses, his eyes glistening. I have heard, he says in a lower voice, that it was a dog that precipitated his demise. Some beast running loose in the streets knocked him down. He never recovered from the blow. A thousand curses on that mutt, eh? to think what it robbed us of. She can only stare at him, open-mouthed. She had made herself believe it was all a prolonged fit of madness. How else to account for it? Standing over his face as he bled and bled, pinning him down as he had done to her, relishing the fear in his eyes, alive in a way she had never felt before or since, the scars on her hand start to throb. A great loss, the bookseller continues. But that someone like you knows of his work is yet further proof of his wisdom and influence. Does he mention a man named Klipfel? And she sees it in his eye. Recognition. Something shifts deep in her belly. Is he a relation? I... In a matter of speaking, the bookseller hesitates, then he waves his hand at her. Wait here. It is only after he leaves that she realizes he has trusted her in his shop, alone. The realization makes her weep a little. She would not have trusted herself, were she in his position. When he returns, he has two volumes on his arm. My own copy, he says proudly, laying the books on the counter. I think I remember the name you mentioned. For a long time, there is only a rustling of pages. The shop, quiet, almost as if enchanted. For though crowds are thronging in the busy street, not a single person opens the door. The bookseller suddenly declares, looking at her with grin that makes him seem boyish. He starts to turn the book toward her, then says, Or would you like me to read it to you? Her hands are trembling. She presses them into her skirts. Yes, she whispers. But as he reads, she starts to cry, silently. He cannot see her around the book that he holds up in the dim sunlight, and so he reads on. Every word 
drops like a hammer blow, and she feels some last piece of herself crumble with each enunciated syllable, replaced first by sorrow, then a hot, dark fury. He slows, looking at her now over the top of the book. You poor creature, he says softly. Are, are you, perhaps, are you this Joan he describes? She opens her mouth to reply, but her whole body is shuddering. She feels about to vomit and instead screams at him. I am Julie! Tearing at her hair, twisting and writhing, almost blind with her tears, her rage. I am Julie! I am Julie! I am Julie! The room spins and lurches. She feels the rush of hot air as the bookseller flings the door open, hears his hoarse cries, Help! She's gone mad! Call for the wagon! On her knees, sobbing, punching at the air, the floor, her fists so tight, her nails cut into her palms. He hadn't even remembered her name. I am Julie! He had given her name to his book and he had given her life to some girl named Joan, and no one would ever, ever know. I am Julie! Her body shaking as if in a fever. As she understands instinctively, she must let herself feel it all. She must feel it all. Hate them as you hoped to love. Cringing under a thousand, grabbing, pawing hands, holding her and bending her as they pleased. Hate them. All the voices in her ear, telling her what she was, who she was. All the ears that never heard her. All the eyes that never saw her. She sobs and sobs as her haunches rise and her fingers fuse together. I am Julie. He had been pacing about their village square, waiting to change horses, the collar of a man of God around his neck. When he had looked her up and down, she had blushed, and she had blushed harder when he offered to drive her home. Reverend Klupfell, the dark, stuffy carriage, snap of the latch. She thought they had ridden forever, when it had only been to find a quiet field where he could take her, whispering in her ear that he loved her, that he would take her to Paris, that she would never want for anything. I am Julie! She smells the policemen before she sees them, and she dives at the first leg she sees, sinking her teeth into his thigh his howl and the other's startled cries like the sweetest music. They pull her off him and she bites another in the forearm and the two go spinning wildly in the bookshop, knocking over bookstands and display volumes until she is brought down heavily on the counter and tumbles behind it, yelping in pain. A pistol fires, sending books in all directions, filling the air with scraps of burnt paper. For God's sake, be careful, the bookseller cries, I had a buyer for those. 
You said it was a mad woman, not a mad dog. One of the policemen snaps. The common mistake, another deadpans, and the others laugh loudly. Behind the counter, Julie crouches, testing her sore leg, readying herself. She hears the nervousness and their too loud laughter. She smells their sweat. She watches her shadows on the wall as they start to inch forward. Her tongue snakes out, tasting the blood on her muzzle. When the first one appears, his sword before him, she leaps back onto the counter, relishing the shock on their faces as she lunges forward and bites at the neck of one, the outstretched hand of another, her teeth tearing at their flesh. They shriek and cry and fall against each other, their swords swinging in loops and arcs that she easily dodges. Beneath her scrabbling paws, the open confessions starts to shred until with a snarl, she kicks it away. In that moment, the bookseller seizes the other volume and swings it at her as hard as he can, knocking her to the floor once more, setting the room alight in flashes of white. She howls then, long and loud and keening. Mother of God, it's not just mad, it's possessed. The bookseller clutches at one of the policeman's arms. Just kill it, kill it. At the sight of the pistol, Julie dashes into the back of the store. The shot cracks the plaster wall near her, sending up a cloud of dust. In the back, she darts to and fro, but the space is crowded with books, everywhere books, piled in towers and spilling off shelves, crates overflowing with unbound signatures and the whole smelling of ink and glue and mildew. There's a door. She can see its shape, but it's so blocked by books and crates, she has no hope of reaching it. She turns, and the policemen are filling the room, blotting out the light. The dark, stuffy space, and nowhere to go. Scrabbling for the latch in Klupfel's carriage, she had wanted the ride and his kiss, but not that. How could she have forgotten? She had tried to make him stop. How had she forgotten? As if he had taken her very will, with her virtue. With a furious growl, she leaps forward once more, and the shot catches her shoulder, tearing through muscle and skin all along her side. The force sends her spinning backwards, crashing into a pile of books, skidding over the crates to smack against the door in a heap. The door swings open. A rush of dry heat pours into the room, followed by a host of braying, howling dogs that leap over her to throw themselves at the men in a frenzy of foaming mouths and wild eyes, the room filled with flailing bodies, the air reverberating with screams of terror, and beneath them an incessant snarling and barking that seems to come from a hundred animals at once. Julie tries to rise, but the dogs are pushing her through the open doorway. As she staggers back, the light increases to a soft glow. The shrinking cacophony becomes muffled, distant. The ground beneath her feet, a soft, dry dirt. Two strong arms pick her up, a deep female voice hushing her as she snaps and whimpers, still trembling in impotent fury. That's my girl, Lisa says, but her words are jumbled in Julie's mind with the firm tone of her voice the feel of her arms caging Julie's body. She turns Julie one way and another, 
stroking her injuries and smoothing them away. Helplessly, Julie nips at her. She cannot check herself, but Lisa only coos and continues to stroke her. The others crowd around now, sniffing and licking. Julie can feel the fierce joy and hunger in their bodies, and she wags her tail in response, eager to join them, even as exhaustion finally starts to overtake her. That's my Julie, Lisa says again. I knew you would come back to us. They move deeper into the glowing warmth, her fingers rubbing Julie's head. I told you, my girl, no fear, no hope. Only your rage can free you, just your rage, sharp as a blade. A taste of their own, eh? She laughs aloud, her deep, full laugh, and eases Julie amidst the other's snuggling bodies, each curling nose to tail, forming a warm, furry patchwork atop the Turkish rug. All of my beautiful, angry girls. She declares proudly, you can run and hunt as you please now. This world, this enlightened, reasonable world, there's more than enough prey to go around. That was L.S. Johnson's Julie, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a baudrin that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her six-year-old son and their 11-year-old Labrador. And, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. She can be found on Twitter at ShellDavis72. Thank you, Michelle. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout outs and swag. Every dollar helps and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we stoke the infernal fires with more Tales to Terrify.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.